uh, we are, we have been in a series called Relationship or Religion, and a couple weeks ago, before our Christmas candlelight service, we did something called Conversation Sunday, and throughout the series that we've been in, um, we have had so many different questions that people have been asking, and we kind of opened the door for, for questions to be asked, and um, we uh, set a special service for that to happen where we start addressing some of these questions that you had, and we had such an overwhelming amount of those that we thought, hey, we didn't get to answer like even half of the questions that were asked, so let's take this last Sunday of the year and do a part two, and we want to definitely make this a rhythm out of our church and our church community that anytime we do a series, man, we want to open it up for conversation, because I just believe in my heart that the church needs to be op- more open open to questions and conversation. Many times church is a monologue. So this is part two this morning that we're going to just address some questions that you had that were submitted, and we're going to also spend some time doing some spontaneous questions. Callie, can I get you to grab the easel um, that's over there? We have a phone number uh, that's actually up on the screen, and this is an opportunity for you. Just want to say welcome to those who are on Facebook Live this morning. We got people that are watching our service from all around the, the United States. Some people even globally are tuning in this morning, and here's what's so awesome about this morning. We're going to spend probably 15 minutes at the end addressing some spontaneous questions. And all you got to do is just text uh, this number, 580-498-4523. And if you text that, we're going to get the questions, and we're going to do our best to answer uh, uh, a few of those questions that we have. And last time we did this, we had had some great spontaneous questions. So we just want you to engage and uh, keep kind of the conversation flowing this morning. So uh, does that make sense, everybody? Everybody ready? Buckling up? Uh, diving into this. So great questions were asked, and we're going to just kind of pick up where we left off last time. And I'll say this, uh, I kind of built a few topics out of the questions that were asked, so if we could have that up on the screen. Yeah, here's some just kind of some general categories that I created in terms of questions that people asked. You know, there were some questions just about the Bible in general, um, a lot of questions about biblical culture, uh, questions about Christian ethics, how do we live our faith out ethically, Christian praxis, what does that look like on a practical everyday basis of how that kind of tangibly these things of God break down in our everyday life, right? The character of God, and then the church as well. So that's kind of the different topics that I'm basing the answers to these questions on. So we're going to dive right into it this morning, and the first one is, is such a good one, and it's such a heartfelt one in terms of uh, just dealing with the tension of what people are going through. So the question, first question that we're going to um, kind of try to address to the best of our ability this morning, um, we'll be up on the screen there. There it is. There it is. Okay, so it's kind of a long one, but um, it's very heartfelt, and I just want to acknowledge and affirm whoever asked this question. It's, it's anonymous on our end, but it's, the question is this. What is your perspective on why God doesn't answer prayers? Great question, right? Uh, for many of us in the room that have lived um, in relationship with God, we know that not all of our prayers sometimes get answered. So especially for a teen who is committed to Jesus, makes straight A's, and loves to worship. I believe people grow weary of unanswered prayer, and they quit praying. I believe this is why some do not, quote, finish the race. I'm about to quit. And I think first and foremost, before we try to acknowledge um, and affirm and kind of just answer this question to the best of our ability, I just want to just sit in the reality of what a deep and a thoughtful question. And what a struggle it is in our lives to understand that sometimes when it feels like the walls are closing in on our lives and, and we live in a world where there's this tension of good and evil, that sometimes it feels as if God is silent. And the way that I want to kind of approach an answer to this question, I feel as if um, we could, there's, there's different ways, there's different approaches you can kind of take in the route of answering this question. But I'm basing my assumption um, on, on how I'm going to answer this off of the assumption that um, this is a question ans- asking specifically why God doesn't answer certain prayers rather than 
God doesn't answer any prayers. Um, the assumption for me in my life is I've seen many times God break in and answer prayers. But here's what I know. My track record of prayers that go up to the Lord aren't 100%. And that's the tension of this question. So the question we're going to focus in on is how do we, yeah, how do we filter through and understand in a relational dynamic with God if this isn't just like a rule book rela- or religion and this is an actual active relationship, what does that look like? Why God in his character, this is a question about the character of God, does he not answer prayers, right? And I'll say this, as many times I said last time, we have a YouTube channel where we've dealt with some of these issues and dealt with some of this conversation, and we opened the door for questions throughout the series, so some of these questions might have kind of already been alluded to or answered in this series, but I would say just kind of as a deeper dive, um, in the series, our part three was, was called Common Filters, and you can find this on YouTube, and we really address some of the viewpoints that we place over the Bible that sometimes we don't even know we're doing, right? Like a catchphrase in, in church is like, God is in control. But that phrase can sometimes be abused because if we really give full control and absolute sovereignty, this idea to the Lord, then that means that we have no part to play in our free will and are actually just robotic. Our life becomes purposeless. There is no hope. We are just literally robots in this kind of just like just scheme that God has like manipulated and, and has be- allowed us to be puppets with, right? So we talked about um, having to understand this idea of God being in charge. In control sometimes can become abused. I like the phrase of describing that God is in charge. In other words, that God is ruling and reigning on his throne as king, and as the Bible describes, we are his ambassadors. And many times there's injustices that happen in our world, and we point the finger at God. But it doesn't take away from the fact that God is ruling and reigning on his throne, but as his ambassadors, many times when there's injustices, we have been called to be people to bring solutions to the injustices that live in the world. That's what it means for us to be the church. So many times we, we can offer this perspective where we, we point the finger many times at God, God, how could you let this happen? Why is this happening? When many times as the church, I think we need to own up and point the finger back to us. How did we, as the ambassadors for God, his kingdom, and the heavenly realm, how did we allow this to happen, right? How did we allow that? Because Jesus is ruling and reigning on his throne. What he's going to get accomplished will be accomplished no matter what. But he's not robotic in the way that we live our lives. But he has empowered us by his spirit to be people that live and confront injustices with the power of God. Through his Holy Spirit. So that's, that's a helpful perspective that we kind of start diving in. I, I would just say from just a big kind of zoomed out perspective, that's a great message to kind of zone in on in terms of the character of God. And sometimes how we apply or misapply ideas about God that do not align with his character and what is revealed through scripture. So we confront those things in this message. But I will say this is that here's what I know in a perspective of prayer. In this heartfelt question, sometimes we feel like giving up, right? Sometimes as human beings... We pray imperfect prayers. As imperfect human beings, we're trying to do this thing called life, connect with a higher power, connect with the God of the universe. Sometimes our prayers are imperfect, and they do not align with God's ultimate sovereign plans for us. And this is where we can rest in the fact that God is sovereign. What he needs to get done will be accomplished, but there's this mystery relationship along the way that we get to participate as his ambassadors. And Jesus, Jesus informed us how to pray, And I think this is going to be really helpful for us from a scriptural standpoint. How are we encouraged to pray, and how does that actually attach to this idea that sometimes prayers go unanswered? Because we have the best intention. 
You know, God promises an eternal state to come where all tears will be wiped away. No more pain. We will relationally connect to one another as human beings spiritually now, outside of our humanity, in perfect harmony with one another. But now and today we live in this tension where imperfect things happen. Evil things still run rampant. So there's, a, there's, this, there's this tension that exists there in terms of this age that we live in, right? That God is still ruling and reigning, but imperfection still runs rampant. There is this idea of a now, but a not yet. We see God's glory break in in the now, but there's also this idea that it's not full. It's not perfect yet. So we live in the day and age where there's this tension and this reality that we live in. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6, how Jesus tells us to pray. He says this, and this, this helps our perspective and how we view the character of God in, in terms of unanswered prayer, right? He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I love this. Jesus encourages us to be people that live what we would call kingdom down. A lot of us born into this world, we want to live culture up, meaning that we start with culture and we try to work our way up. Culture has created all different types of worldviews and how we're supposed to live our lives. This is why we get so caught up in things like politics and certain political parties, right? It's because we believe we got to join one side. But here's what we know about both political parties. They are imperfect because there is a third option, and his name is Jesus and his kingdom. And when we begin to believe and live in a way where we're like, we're going to live culture up, we buy into the lie that says you got to be one part of one side and you got to demonize the other. But there's a third option. His name is Jesus. He has kingdom rule and reign in how he thinks about injustices that exist on this earth. And he encourages us to live in such a way where we live and we pray and we think about the world kingdom down. Your kingdom will, will be done. Your will be done. You're on earth as it is in heaven. Come on, we are bringing heavenly rule and reign to every nook and cranny in society. It goes on, tells us how to pray. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Meaning this, when you acknowledge God, when you pray, this is what we're acknowledging. We're we're acknowledging your will above mine. I'm going to pray something that I believe that I need, but God has a bigger sovereignty picture that sometimes it's hard for us to connect with and to see. And that's where I just really want to compassionately empathize with the person who asked this question. Because here's the deal. Life is hard. Life as a believer, a follower of Jesus, is very hard. You know, Jesus, he said, come follow me. But then there's this aspect of Christianity that sometimes we don't make the transition with where he says, carry your cross. Die to yourself. When we think about the brutal murder of Jesus, we can pinnacalize injustice. The perfect one who came to bring freedom gets murdered in this Roman midst. And as followers of him, many times in the scripture, he is encouraging us to join in with that very suffering in which he endured on the cross. But this is where we struggle as Western Christians and people in the United States many times is we believe, well, you become a Christian and your life is completely sanitized from anything bad ever happening. Where have we got this idea? And where are we begging for ideas? Sometimes we we get our best ideas through news outlets, but I would say our best ideas come from the truth of Scripture. Kingdom down. Kingdom down. We start with the truth of God. And here's what what Paul encourages the early church, early Roman church in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
Faith gets you in. Not your works, not how good you are, not how religious you are. This is a relationship we're talking about. Faith gets you in. Faith alone, justified. We are justified through faith, not your works. Not how well you think you have it or how you relate to God or how you can try to get to God, the vertical morality. No, but faith, placing your faith in him, that's what gets you in with God. We have peace with God. He gives us peace when we just place our faith. This peace that only God can give through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also, here it is, glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering, what does it do? It produces perseverance. Perseverance, then character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We need to build a better theology of suffering in our faith. Horrible things happen to us. But here's what I love about it. Horrible things are like ammo, attacking our life, aiming for us. Man, the enemy would want nothing else than to discourage us, to make us believe we are hopeless people without a higher calling, without a higher purpose. And this is what Jesus says, bring it on, because I'm going to spin those discouragements around, that suffering around, and it's going to give me glory. Sometimes we pray prayers because they don't align with the bigger story that God's creating for you in your life. That you being a witness of Jesus, actually dealing with life like everybody else, not living this lie like your life sanitized when you started becoming a follower of Jesus, but understanding that you're carrying your cross, life is hard, but you have a relationship with the higher power, the God of the universe. And when somebody else comes into your life struggling with that pain, out of the rawness of your own experience, God says, use that story to break chains in Jesus' name. Use that story and that life experience to bring truth into somebody's situation where they feel like giving up. God uses our story for his glory, even in the midst of the suffering and the evil that the enemy is trying to use for harm and destruction in our life. Man, I'm going to be a person that's going to swing the bat in prayer every time when I see a need that doesn't align with God's kingdom. But here's what I know about God's sovereignty. Sometimes I don't have the big picture of what God sees of what he wants to use the suffering of my endurance to use for somebody else's life in the future. God chooses to not be distant and live outside of time. But as we've addressed in this series, what does he do? He chooses to come within the scope of time, live moment for moment basis in relationship with us. His capacity is bigger than time, but his character is comes and chooses to dwell among us. The beauty of the Christmas narrative is the beauty of understanding how God hears, sees, and aligns many times with our prayer. But when we, we don't feel like we get our, our way, our will, our rubric of how we can measure up to God because it doesn't work for us, we should never, care, we should never question the character of God because he always has a bigger picture in mind for the goodness of our lives in his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. So once again, a long answer for, for a question, but it really has to do with the character of God and how we see and view God himself. Amen? God uses many times our suffering and his sovereignty for good. I'm glad I only see in part. I'm glad that I don't see what God sees and believe that I have a God complex to be the one who's in charge of this all. But he's in charge. We get to follow his lead.
and walk in relationship with the God of the universe who chooses to become lowly and live and be among us. Emmanuel, God with us. All right, let's, let's move on. Next topic and question involving the church. I love this question. Great question, whoever asked this. There are so many issues with addiction and domestic violence in our community. Absolutely agree with that. Lived here two years, a little over two years, and it's in your face. You can't get away from the realities of, of, of really somebody streaming me on Facebook Live. Come on, somebody. That's Sorry, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't nobody look. Um, we're real here. Um, so um, what is the church's role in confronting or battling these issues? Here, here's what I believe. When we see issues in our community, we can turn a blind eye. When we see injustices in our nation, we can turn a blind eye. You have the opportunity to turn a blind eye each and every day. Here's, here's what we need to understand as a church. Our community's problems are our problems. If we are his ambassadors called to bring the injustices to God's justice, how he sees this life from kingdom down perspective, we need to be people that care about the injustices that exist in our community. But I'll be honest with you. When we believe the lie that it's the pastor down, we get robbed of understanding each and every issue in our community is actually going to be solved. This is why Jesus, in his planning and preparation, a lot of people say, oh, just be led by the Spirit. Just go for it, you know, floaty. You know, Jesus prepared. You know, Jesus worked with numbers and systems. He actually had a plan in how he wanted to take over the world with his justice. He started with 12. He got intimate with three he had a one-on-one deep relationship with his father. And then somehow those 12, where one of them actually got wiped out and they had to replace him, because we're talking once again about imperfect people, somehow those 12 multiplied into what we have a few billion Christians. It's people that self-identify with, as Christians today. Somehow, in the midst of a Roman Empire that was against Christianity, God was thinking about a system and a multiplication system that would actually survive in the midst of oppression in the midst of things that are coming up against people that don't agree with the kingdom principles and the culture that God was infiltrating in terms of our society and how we live on this earth. This isn't just a city problem we're talking about. This is our problem. We as the church, we have to own these things and understand that we need to have a game plan in place of how we're going to try to help and alleviate the problems that we see in our city and our culture. That is our job. As a Christian, you can't turn a blind eye to the injustices of what God sees in terms of his mission and his purposes for our world. So here's how I think about it. There's uh, just two main ways in terms of the, the injustices that we see in our, in our city. I think, number one, we need to partner with those who are already helping. There's tons of great ministries and nonprofits in our city, in our community, um, where people are already doing something. And our, our approach up to this point has been, hey, if there are people are already doing something great, we're not going to try to reinvent the wheel compete with other churches who are trying to see the kingdom justices of God come through and forth. We're going to join in and we're going to bless those people. We're going to join in with things that are already great, that are serving a need in our community. But here's what I know. We also have to seek out and find the needs that aren't being met. And we need to get creative and we need to build ministry around reaching and helping alleviate some of those injustices that exist in our society. Do we have eyes to see how we can help fulfill those needs not being met? This is why Jesus said we were going to do greater things. Not saying that like, we're going to become greater than Jesus. He knew he was one dude. He was one dude that empowered 12. 
He built, and then we see the metaphor throughout the Scripture in the New Testament. His strategy was this thing called the church. Not confined to a building, but a community of the greatest resource of all time. Living, breathing human beings that God looks at not as tools for his mission, but jewels in the midst of his mission that he's going to use to infiltrate society. It's like Jesus multiplied time in and time out. Lights in the darkness. Lighting up areas of darkness and injustice that exist in our community. John 14, 12, he says, we are the body of Christ. He is the head, but we get to be his community. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus is like, peace out. By the way, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit, empowering you to be able to do the things that I did. And here's what I know. When Jesus is marked on your life, there's more than one Jesus now. I'm an authority. My sovereign will is going to happen. But guess what? You as the church, you get to go in. Don't be a sissy Christian. Don't. Don't be a person that warms the pew. Be empowered by God's spirit in the community to bring just injustices down. To pray healing over people that need to be healed. To understand that the DNA of heaven is within you. And with that, you bring power and purpose everywhere you go. Jesus confined himself as a human being to one person. And then he blows that thing wide open to multiply it out. And it's this thing called the church of Jesus Christ. That's us. That's we. That's we get to say, Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Empower me to make a difference. Help me be bold in areas where I'm not. Help me understand that even if I feel like I'm less than, I have something greater to give anyone because of how you've called me and, and who I am in you and how you've redefined me. Jesus was consistently an activist for one thing. There's a lot of injustices in our world. There's a lot of bandwagons we can kind of jump on in terms of what's going to be the big solution to the world. Once again, I love Jesus. He's, he kind of already has figured out the game plan. He, he, he was an activist for one thing. You know what that one thing was? Discipleship. Discipleship. His mission for us is to go and make disciples. Go. Be a disciple maker. Because you could jump on the bandwagon of different, you know, different things about injustices, but he's like, here's, here's what actually breaks in. People that have kingdom justice, kingdom authority, in our society, discipling other people into that kingdom authority, being sent out to deal with the problems of this world. One thing Jesus activated more than anything else and commissioned us to do, to be disciple makers. Not to look at the church as a destination, but to look and view the church as a people being called from their spaces of comfort, being called out of Jerusalem in the early days, being called out of the religious place that they had created, and going out and actually bringing justice to where it was needed. This is what he has called the church and commissioned the church to do. The Great Commission. Go and make disciples. That one thing he keeps pinnacle time and time again. So what is discipleship? Matthew 4.19, he defines it. He does this. He models it for us. He says, come follow me. And I will send you out to fish for people. I will make you fishers of men. Are we fishing for men? Are we prioritizing? Are we lost the love for, for what God has called us to do? I love this question because it, it begs a response on the church's end. It seems like in our society sometimes that the church isn't rising up and actually bringing justice to where there's injustices. I couldn't agree more. But as long as I'm pastor in this church, you know what we're going to be commissioned into? The Great Commission. 
We're going to be commissioned into understanding that we're going to build systems and structure for our, us to grow in our disciple-making abilities to actually be the hands and feet of Jesus, to go out and to literally allow the kingdom of God to fall in each and every nook and cranny of our society, our city, and beyond. So what is our main vehicles of discipleship currently at our church? One of our main vehicles is our small groups. That's how we do it. That's our job, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry as the church staff. To equip, not the pastor, to receive glory and, oh, pastor, look what the great events you've planned and put on the church calendar. No. The church staff, the top down of the church is built to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We have to attack this thing together. We have to be equipped. We have to be discipled. And our main vehicle currently in our church culture is small groups. We do three different types of small groups. One's called discipleship group. One's called a fun group where you just have fun. And the last one's called a love group where it's a, little, it's a justice-oriented group. We've had numerous groups rise up and find needs within our society. One of them goes on Sunday mornings to K County Jail and, and literally ministers and does church services for people on Sunday mornings. That's a need that we saw. But guess what? The amount of the need being fulfilled is only going to be relative to the amount of laborers that rise up and say yes. Pastor, why are we fulfilling this need? Pastor, pastor, pastor. Because one man can't do it all. Jesus modeled it. That's why he commissioned his church out filled with the spirit. Because he multiplied it out. And we believe this lie. It's like, well, we're going to treat pastor like Jesus. No. I'm going to do the same thing that Jesus did. Commission us into a community and say, this is on us. We got to go be the hands and feet. And our breakthrough in what we're seeing in, in our community is going to be relative to the laborers who rise up. What did Jesus say? He said, the harvest is plentiful, but what? The laborers are few. This is our problem. We can't turn a blind eye as a Christian. This is our problem. We have to partner with the things and the mission. Man, people are like, I don't want to go to church anymore. You know why? Because we've divorced the mission. It's not an adventure anymore. People are sick of showing up, listening to a pastor talk, like kind of like we're doing right now. I want to get out there. There's a world that's dying. There's people that are hopeless. There's depression running rampant. There's mental illness that is affecting so many people. And we've been hush-hush in the church. This is on us. This is on us. we got to rise. we got to call down the religiousness that sometimes encapsulates us. And we got to move forward in Jesus' name. His kingdom come. His will be done. In Ponca City, as it is in heaven. Come on, somebody. This is on us. I love this question because it just strikes an arrow right to my heart of understanding, man, we, we can miss it so easily. We can get convinced into a religious country club so easily, but we have been commissioned to be the hands, the feet, and the justice of Jesus. When you are a disciple maker, you are bringing and multiplying the kingdom of God, his rule and reign, into every nook and cranny of society. We talk about this a lot as a church staff, especially recently in this season. How are we, how is everything we do at the church encouraging other people to be disciple makers? Jesus didn't only make disciples, he made disciple makers. He made people that made disciples. How are we doing that? That's our job. How are we building everything that we do? Why are we doing it? Are we, is it actually fueling the thing that Jesus encouraged most of all, his mission? And if we're not, we're going to say, you know what? The methods change. We live in 2018, the methods look a lot different. Our worship this morning looks a lot different than 50 years ago, how people expressed worship to God, right? But the mission doesn't stay the same. 
The mission stays the same, but the methods are always changing. We're always trying to change the methods. I'm not married to the methods. I'm not. Because we live in a different day and age where people relate to society and subculture differently. And we got to figure out how to connect people in their orientation of culture today and connect them with kingdom culture. Amen? Amen. Okay. Hopefully that was helpful for whoever asked that question. Great question. You got me riled up. You got me going. Okay, here we go. Uh, next question is this. This is kind of a biblical culture question. I'll say this. Um, I have several resources up here. Um, for cultural questions, there's a great cultural background study Bible that came out a couple years ago. This has been a godsend. It's like a bunch of resources in Bible college mixed into a Bible. So, um, and I refer to this on a weekly if not daily basis sometimes, right? Um, so if you have cultural questions, this is a big one because, once again, the Bible is a different cultural uh, document. We, like, read it face value in, in terms of our Western United States lens, and we miss a lot because we're not taking into consideration what life was like in the culture when these documents were written and inspired by God as his word. So just to address a few things quickly, there's a question. Where did Cain's wife come from? If Adam and Eve only had two sons. So it's like, well, okay, if it started with Adam and Eve, right, and they had this son, Cain, like where, how did he have a wife, right? Um, I'll say this, Genesis 5-4 helps us understand that Cain and Abel weren't um, Adam and Eve's only children. That's an assumption that we kind of make, oh, it was only two. Well, we know later on in Genesis chapter 5 that there was more than just Cain and Abel as Adam and Eve's children. So... The only possible answer is that Cain's wife probably was his sister or niece or great-niece, etc. We don't know. But here's what we do know. If, if we literally believe that the family started in the origin of two people, um, this, this had to happen, right? Um, so this is a, a progression in terms of God's family and how he used it to begin. So let's keep going. What does it mean when Paul speaks of the third heaven? Ooh, this is a good one. Everybody, everybody ever thought that? Like you read kind of some of the letters of Paul and he starts talking about the third heaven, right? Um, Cultural issue right here. Here's what we need to understand. Jewish culture, Jewish society, uh, Jewish sources help us understand that Jews believed there were three to 365 levels of heaven or realms that existed within the atmosphere, right? We don't have modern science. We have people trying to relate to scientific type things and expressing them the best of their ability in their ancient culture. Correct, right? Um, so here's what the most common number was for Jews in terms of how they thought about heaven or realms. Their numbers were three and seven. They most commonly believed there was three levels of heaven or realms or seven realms of he or heaven, right? So um, to give you an example, the, the three, many, many within the Jewish faith believe that the first realm of heaven was the sky and the birds. Okay, let's bring description to what I'm experiencing as a human being without modern science. Then there's this other realm called space. This is the realm I see at night when I see the stars. And then there's this other realm called heaven. That's God's space, his realm. So when Paul speaks of this, he's speaking out of a cultural realm or cultural lens that plays through this idea that was common for Jews. Once again, those ideas can't be implanted in our brain. That's where we have to be good studiers and interpreters of the scripture, crossing the cultural gap and understanding when he's speaking of a third heaven, it was commonplace for people to understand exactly what he was talking about. He's talking about the realm of God. He's talking about God's space. He's talking about this third realm as described that would be descriptive of God's literal space, not our space. Okay? Um, here's another one. How did God rest on the seventh day when a seven-day week cycle wasn't created until 6th century B.C.? 
So I'm always trying to give my best stab at understanding what the, sometimes there's questions behind the questions, right? So I just kind of answered this one literally. So there's an assumption of, of the calendar, kind of how we adapted the calendar and the seven-day week cycle and all these types of things. Well, it's interesting because the seven-day week cycle actually points to Judaism in the 6th century B.C. So Jews were the ones who kind of adapted this idea of, okay, sun coming up, sun coming down, and the seven-day week cycle, right? And here's, here's what's so interesting is we don't know exactly when the first book of the Bible, Genesis, was written, but we have a lot of cultural clues into how this, the, this, this piece of literature was written, the book of Genesis. The culture that is ex- described in the book of Genesis, how poetically the first few ch- chapters of the creation story were created and written, give us clues that really a lot of scholars point to, uh, cultural clues that reflect to the culture of around 1500 B.C., the book of Genesis, right? It seems like there's cultural influence of when this was written, around 1500 B.C., right? So, you have a cultural frame and an idea and an understanding that influences the seven-day week, or, yeah, seven-day week cycle. And, and here's, here's kind of the cultural flame, f- framing. I'm, it, all you, like, nerds in the room are going to love this. Everybody else is going to fall asleep. But um, great, there's great literature, great books, great scholars who have written about this. The book of Genesis, um, in the creation narrative, God creates a cosmic temple, and then there's these seven days that connect to seven-day temple dedications that were common to the culture. So we have this seven-day week that's reflected of the culture that has to do with Jewish culture of why it was written the way it was written and described in the way it was written. And at the end, the deity takes up his rest in the temple. So God is this, this creative story about creation, right, through the lens of this cultural understanding that there's a seven-day dedication of a temple that was common to Jewish culture. And on the seventh day, the, deity that, the deities that were worshipped during that time would take a rest. So God takes his place within the creation narrative and th- this beautiful piece of poetic literature was written called our creation story that's included within the Bible. So I would argue, kind of long, once again, long answer to a short question is actually Jews and the people of God uh, influenced the seven-day calendar week more than anybody else. History has shown that and kind of proven that. So it's not an idea of like um, how did this, you know, the chicken or the egg or whatever. It's this idea of understanding that, um, once again, we don't know specific dates when things were written, but we do know there was cultural influences, and the seven-day week was something that points time and time again in history to originate with God's people, the Jewish people. So good, good thing to know and understand. Okay, I'm going to give us like maybe two more minutes. Let's see, is this next one heavy? Can we, because I want to get to some of these uh, spontaneous questions. Yeah, let's do this next one, and then we'll go to the, the spontaneous. Have we gotten any? Spo- okay, we've gotten some. Good. All right. Uh, why do Jews not believe that Jesus has come to earth already. They're God's chosen people. How can they not know the Messiah has died on the cross already? Come on, how are you missing it? That's a great question. Once again, cultural. And, and here's what it is. Um, it's helpful to understand the cultural scene of what Jesus was ministering to and stepping into when he came and he spoke about this gospel of the kingdom of God. Um, Jews had a different expectation of who their Messiah would and should be. Um, and, and here's what I'll say, without going into it, once again, I think we've done a decent job in our message series of talking about this. Uh, we have a couple messages that I would, I would point to if you want to take a deeper dive on this principle. Are those ones up on the, up on the screen, Ty? A couple messages. Should be on the next slide. Yeah, so our YouTube channel. Um, in this series, we talked about the Davidic covenant. And as we talked about this covenant that God made with David, 
many times people had this earthly royal picture of who the Messiah was to be, and Jesus flipped that around because people were expecting an earthly Messiah, and he was like, boom, I'm going to die, be raised to life, and you're going to realize I am a heavenly king and Messiah. So a lot of people missed it, and Jesus was constantly addressing this expectation of saying, you're missing it. That I've come from the line of David. So we address a lot of that. And then we, we had a series earlier in the year called Expansion. And the part six of this, this is about the early church in Acts. We have a, we have a message that I think is really timely and helpful. Jew or Christian? I just believe this. So can I just be honest? We have a lot of Christians that identify more religiously as being Jewish than actual Christians. They're living not under the new covenant of Jesus, but actually are kind of once again straddling, trying to straddle too. And you can't straddle too. You can't straddle the old and the new. And we have a lot of people that are living under the religiousness and the law of the Old Covenant, which time and time again, as we've seen in this series, that Jesus is constantly confronting and has said, no, we need to step fully into this thing called the New Covenant. So if that idea seems like out of this world for you, maybe you're new this morning, um, check check this series out. Uh, We just really try to simplify and understand how do we interpret the Bible and how does that reflect of how we live as human beings relating to God today in our current day and age. So if you want to take a deeper dive on that, I would say uh, check these two messages out. I think they're going to be really, really helpful for you. They're up on YouTube. And once again, we have about 15 minutes left, so let's take some spontaneous questions. Callie. Good question. So the question is, basically, is there any sin that God's grace and his mercy um, cannot cover? So um, here's what we know is that God's grace is love. The Bible tells us that it covers a multitude of sins. I think where we get, and we talked a little bit about this two weeks ago, where it can get very deceptive is when we begin to be people that begin to trade truth for a lie. A lot of people freak out with this verse in the Bible that talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, right? But in the context of that, Jesus is speaking to an audience where literally they're standing right in front of God and they don't know him. They don't recognize him. So what makes a person vulnerable to not receiving the truth of Jesus in their lives is a person who has literally confused truth with untruth. Literally can't recognize from what's truth and what's not. And Jesus came as truth in the flesh, right? So is there any sin that can like basically kind of like cut you away from anything of God's grace and not be him not forgiving your sins? Absolutely not. His grace is more powerful. This is so funny. Like in the church, it's like, well, I'm still a sinner. No, you're not. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've taken on a new crown, and it's a crown and authority of grace. You're no longer by that old identity. And as long as you're like, I'm wearing the title sinner, of course you're going to be continue to be like, well, I'm sinning, you know? No. God, the Apostle Paul, he encourages us to take a different perspective, to be one that walks in relationship with Jesus, not living under the authority of our old master, the flesh, but living under this new master called the spirit. It's a renovation. It's a work in progress. We're not going to be perfect, but we're going to be humble about it. People, people are down with humble hypocrites. You know, you know what the world's not down with? Christians who think they know everything and who are hypocrites. You're going to be a hypocrite no matter how you slice it. You know how you're actually going to win people? Be humble about it. Don't be a jerk. It's as simple as that. We're like, oh, yeah, these spiritual things. The most spiritual thing I could tell you this morning is don't be a jerk if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus. Come on, somebody. Love as the primary. We talk a lot about love in this series and how Jesus has prioritized love, right? Um, what was the question again? Uh, <laughs> here's what happens every time, right? So, yeah, is there, is there any? No, there is not. But what makes you susceptible uh, what makes you susceptible as, as a person who rejects that love? 
that God gives is when you begin to trade truth for a lie. You begin to convince yourself and you can't tell the difference of what truth and, and untruth is. You, begin, you allow yourself to be susceptible to lies that would cause you to willfully reject the grace of God in your life. And once again, this isn't a one-stop shop answer. This is a spectrum of people's life and experiences and how they relate to God. I remember there was a class in Bible college and we just thought about the people. We just spent 20 minutes at the end of class rather than talking about theology. It was like, hey, who are some people that you know who are literally kind of on the fence maybe with their faith? Maybe people that are struggling. Maybe much like the person that we talked about who said, I, I just, I'm hearing a lot of unanswered prayers and I'm about to give up. We all know people like that. And you know what we can do in the midst of all that? We can not only be faithful witnesses who, who live like Jesus, be the light of the world, but we have this powerful thing that God's given us the authority to do, and it's called prayer. So let's spend the last 15, 20 minutes of class. We know those people that are struggling, that are kind of on the edge, it seems like. We don't know what that looks like in the eternal spectrum of God and, and how, where they are in terms of how they relate to God. But we know those people. Each and every one of us know those types of people who are in a very discouraging season. And, man, when we think about those people, we need to pray for those people. We need to, man, activate God's revelation to those people to see his goodness, his glory. Because there's people who give up. There's people who literally reject the truth and the grace of God and begin to confuse those things and believe, oh, I'm, un I'm unforgivable. But if anything, the good news of Jesus proves that wrong because you're worth it. You have a life plan, a life mission. You have made and created in the image of God. Although you are tarnished, although, man, you are shattered at times, I'm going to put you back together, Jesus promises. It's going to be a process, and it's not going to happen overnight, but I'm going to give you a new starting point, and I'm going to fill you with my spirit who's going to direct, guide you, and allow you to have relationship with me. So here's what I want us to do right now. Let's pray, because I know as I spoke about those people, each and every one of us have people in mind. So I just want us to take a moment right here and pray for the very people where we're like, I know people are on the edge right now. And we just need to pray and believe God's going to, we're going to believe there's praise reports coming out of this morning because we chose to corporately pray for those very people who we know are on the fence right now. Can we do that? Lord Jesus, Lord, we desperately pray. These are your people. These are your children. These are the people that you have died for. God, and we know that there's people right now that are so discouraged, so disconnected from you, God. And we call upon your grace and your mercy, Lord. The whole idea of church is built around this idea that there's people disconnected that need to get reconnected with your life's purposes, the way that you see them. So God, right now, we beg you, we ask, each and every one of us individually, personally, we know people, family members, close friends, who maybe are disconnected with your grace right now, the way that you see life, the purpose that you give. God, and we just pray that you would reveal yourself so strong. We see time and time again in Scripture where you miraculously show up. God, we pray for that revelation to happen in Jesus' name, Lord, for each and every person that, Lord, your love would become so real to them when it feels so distant maybe right now, when it feels like life's closing in, God. Lord, we just pray, we believe, God, that you're going to show up in a big way. For people that are on the fence, the enemy wants nothing. The enemy of our souls wants nothing more than to push people off that cliff of hopelessness. But, Lord, yours is a gospel of hope. Your good news is one that keeps people you want to grab people into your loving arms, your merciful arms. So, Lord, right now we just choose to be people that repent where we've missed it, where we've, we've missed this whole idea of being ambassadors and being your church and being on mission where we've reduced, Lord God, your church, how you think about the world down to literally an event. 
But, Lord, you've commissioned us. So right now we're, we're being activators, understanding, Lord God, that it's your heart to see each and every person come to know you. That's why you sent us out to go to make disciples. Because you knew, Lord God, that through your spirit we could accomplish much more than you were able to accomplish three and a half years on the earth. But you said, I've set a plan into motion, the mission of the church. So, Lord, help us partner with that mission where we've missed it. Help us to prioritize disciple-making, Lord. Help us as even a church, Lord, to set the stage for people to become disciple-makers and maybe people who have thought that idea is intimidating. But, Lord, you've committed. We can't get out of that as followers of Jesus. We can't erase that page from your word and your scripture and in the day and age we live in. So, Lord, help us. Help us activate this muscle of prayer more times than maybe we have. Help us be reminded by the people that need you. Help us when we're face-to-face. We don't pray silent prayers, but we actually live out a faith that blesses, that loves enemies, that prays for those who have been cursed. We all know people that have become enemy-type people in our lives and our families. And, Lord, you've called us to prioritize love. That's hard, and we can't do it on our own, which is why your spirit came to help us, guide us, and lean in on the things of you rather than on the divisiveness of this world and our culture. Help us today. Help us be the hands and the feet of you, our Savior. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen, amen. I just feel like that's a fitting place to close this morning, you guys. And, and here's what I know. We're not going to end and kind of reflect um, on worship this morning. But I would just encourage you, um, be encouraged this week. Continue to ponder the why. I loved it. This morning in pre-service prayer, um, Julianne, one of our staff members, she said, man, it just, I feel like the Lord just keeps kind of pushing me on why. Why do I do what I do? I think that's a healthy question to ask in our faith. Why do you believe? Some of us have really inherited this idea of like, I'm just, just go to church. I'm a churchgoer. But I just really feel like in 2019, God's pushing us as a church to really address the question, why? Why have I really built my life around a faith tradition? And do I actually, am I all in? Am, or am I half in? Am I all in with the things of God? And here's what I know. If we have more and more people that are saying, I'm all in. I'm on mission for God. What will 2019 bring? The good old days are still to come. I stole that from Chip and Joanna Gaines. Um, Anyway, but I really believe that in my heart. Do we believe that in our faith? We can point back to the past. Look what we did. Look what we did. There is a beautiful harvest field in front of us, but we can opt out. My prayer is that we would opt in 2019. The best is yet to come. Amen.